Welcome to Parallel Quest, a podcast where two friends talk about the stories we love and share our personal stories of the impact they've had on our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Cody Haggard, and alongside, or maybe more accurately said, across the internet from me, my co-host and great friend and author and swashbuckler, Zach Butler. (laughs) Zach, how you doing today? I don't know if I've ever swashed any buckles, but... I appreciate the intro, man. That's good. It's good. Hey, you know, it's just, we're, we're going to have a swashbuckling good time as we talk about Treasure Island a little later on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've always loved that word, swashbuckler. Swashbuckler. And, and I know it has something to do with being a pirate, but I can I couldn't even tell you the proper definition of what it is to buckle a swash. I I don't know. I, I would... I imagine... You are cleaning something. It sounds like you should be cleaning, but I don't oh. know if that's a buckle or if that has something to do with the ship. I don't even know much about boats, mm. even though my my grandpa owned a boat for, I mean, pretty much most of his life. And uh, mm. I couldn't tell you. Actually, no, I could tell you one thing. I know the bow is the back or is that the front the see now i don't even know <laughs> no i'm mm. second because i know bow and stern and i ha- uh, yeah i'm gonna tell you i couldn't tell you either i believe bow is the front and stern is the back um but my my friend and roommate david would be real upset with me right now <laughs> yeah, not knowing dude. bow and stern and starboard and i don't know the, the other, other one, one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man we're so sorry david <laughs> Goodness, I'm so sorry to our listeners. We're having an episode about Treasure Island here, and we are totally screwing up all things nautical. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's just take a look here. It looks like uh, the bow is the front, okay, and the stern is the back. Starboard is the right side, and port is the other. Oh my oh, gosh, Lord. port! Come uh, on now, duh. come on now, duh. idiots. I, we are idiots. We should have known that because it just makes a lot of sense. That that does make sense. But a little update on swashbuckler. It is a noun. Um, it's a noun. Oh, which is a a person who engages in daring and romantic adventures ah. with bravado or flamboyance. So, you know, if we're calling you a swashbuckler, we could also call you very flamboyant or daring. If we want to go with that. I believe yeah, that was also <laughs> okay. I'm also <laughs> going to say or daring. I think I'm going to use that part of the definition since okay since it is describing me. <clears throat> Actually, it wouldn't be describing; it would just be a noun. So, so this episode, we're either going to have a swashbuckling good time, a daring good time, or a flamboyantly good time. And depending on which one you like best, come in and join on. Our journey. But, Zach, I got to ask you, man, how you been? Tell me a story from your week. I want to hear something good. All right, man. I've got... I don't want to add to the cultural conspiracy that seems to be flying around right now. Just It just seems like every time you get in the news, there's some someone calling someone else a conspiracy theorist or that's a good, like unfounded, blah, blah, blah. Listen, this is Parallel Quest. We're not here to talk about the news or at least too in-depthly we're here yeah. to entertain to have a good time to maybe even take you out of the news and out of your daily routine that maybe 
you just are like, I need just some entertainment. That is what we're here for. And so I've got a conspiracy. I've got a conspiracy today, but it's it's a little more lighthearted. It's a little more lighthearted. These are the best kind of conspiracies. So I I think I encountered this is how I started to formulate my conspiracy was actually last Christmas. And it was actually a little bit before last Christmas. Because around the fall time, while everyone's out getting their pumpkin spice lattes and getting their pumpkin spice whatever, Starbucks has to start taking an inventory of what Ooh. they had. And now I'm okay. I have no facts to back this up, which is why it's a conspiracy. So mm-hmm. but Every business towards the end of the year, towards that fourth quarter, they're going to check their product. They're going to see how mm-hmm. much of what they have on hand they still have in stock. And they know that if it's a food product or if it's a perishable good, you need to get rid of that as soon as you can. Because you don't want to have a bunch of expired food or whatever on your hands that you just have to throw away. It's lost profit. It's just it's an expense, basically, at that point. So I believe... so. Before we get to what I believe, this is how I think it gets set up. Okay. All right. I think Starbucks, when they're pumping out their pumpkin spice stuff, they're also taking mm-hmm. stock of their normal Pike's Place because that's what they sell. All that's right. their go-to coffee. That's good too. It's the staple. Good coffee, staple coffee. Mm-hmm. It's there all year round. But I think what starts to happen is as Christmas becomes like more prominent as it comes closer mm-hmm. they start to they have the this this other blend that they come out and and those of you who are super starbucks fans and diehard raving fans you guys know what i'm talking about i'm talking about the christmas blend mm, yes the christmas blend. and now the christmas blend pops up mm-hmm. around november right after the yeah. whole fall season ends and mm-hmm. What my conspiracy is, is because all of a sudden we have so much of the, the, the Christmas blend, but then it all goes away, basically January 1st. God. So you're telling me that Starbucks, and I noticed this last year because I went into Starbucks basically November 31st and then November, or not November 31st, October 31st and then November 1st. And I got a Pike's Place the day before. And then the next day, all of a sudden, the Christmas blend was out. I'm like, oh, sweet. I love the Christmas blend. Mm. It's, it's, labeled, so it's, it's labeled as yeah. a dark roast. It's very yeah. good. But I noticed something this time. As I walked out of Starbucks and I had my coffee, I took a sip. And I thought to myself, I think they gave me the wrong coffee. Because Ooh. what I had just tasted was Pike's Place. Mm. But... I know for a fact that I asked for a Christmas blend. And so I went back in and I was like, hey, I think I got the wrong thing. I wanted, you know, the Christmas blend. They're like, oh, no, that is the Christmas blend. And I didn't say anything at that point because then I was like, wait a minute. So my conspiracy theory ever since that day is that Starbucks does not get a whole new shipment of beans that are Christmas blend. I think what they do is they take that excess Pike's Place Mm -hmm. and they rebrand it. 
as Christmas blend because they know they got to get rid of any of that Pike's place that's going to be sitting around into the new year that they haven't already sold. And so I think that they just rebrand it and sell it as something else, even for a little bit higher price, but it's still Pike's place. Ah, so yeah, they just add a little bit of spice in there, you think, just to make it Christmas blendy, but it's actually Pike Place, which isn't even a dark roast. Yep. So you think you, you think that Starbucks is just scamming us during the holidays? Of all times to scam us? I believe I believe it's not even a true dark roast. I think they probably add or in order to make it seem like it's a dark roast, they probably take a little less water out so it's a little you know bolder and i think they serve it that way i do i do think that during the christmas season starbucks is scamming every single one of us by telling us that we're buying christmas blend coffee when we're actually buying pike's place and i don't like it Uh, you know what what you need to start doing is when you go down when you go down there when you go down there and you get your Brugger's bagels, <laughs> that's right. You need you need to stop going into that Starbucks. Well, the th- you know you need to start getting your coffee at the place that that's going to have real coffee, real Christmas br- blend. Does Brugger's have a Christmas blend? Probably not. I don't seem like they. Would. <laughs> they, I think, they get their <laughs> coffee out of like an instant coffee packet. Is what I feel like Brugger's bagels would do. <laughs> like I mean they they do. I've I've seen them make their coffee at Brugger's. They're just using packets, not instant packets, but they're just just packets. Just packets. Yeah, I don't I yeah, I yeah. but I I still have gone to Starbucks and I still will go there, but I don't go there during the Christmas time. And I don't know why because mm-hmm. it doesn't really justify my conspiracy theory in the sense that I shouldn't just I should just forego Starbucks altogether, but during the Christmas time, I'm like, I would rather just have a Pike's Place because this is the same coffee to me. You just rebranded it. I'd rather pay the cheaper price, the actual Pike's Place price, and get actual Pike's Place. I don't want to. I don't want mm-hmm. someone to add a little cinnamon or add a little spice like that. I want just coffee. And I thought for the longest time that Christmas blend was just, you know, a dark roast for the winter time. But after that day where they told me, nope, that is that is what you ordered. That is Christmas blend in that cup. And I said to myself, this is Pike's Place. Ever since that day, I, I'm on the conspiracy that mm. Christmas blend is just Pike's Place rebranded. Wow. You, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm starting to get real nervous now of whether or not I should ever have Starbucks again. Like, what? What do you feel about that? I mean, that was not my intention. <laughs> my- In fact, it sounds to me like Starbucks m- might just be scamming us all. Who? Kn- maybe Starbucks isn't even even serving real coffee. It, it sounds to me like maybe they're just putting black dye into water. How's that sound? I mean. It could be, but I've seen them blend coffee beans, so yeah, I think that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of charades to go through. To hey, I've also seen David Copperfield jump into a tornado. Doesn't mean it happened. That is okay, a good point. Just, I'm just saying. That's a good point. <laughs> I do I do not hold to anything I just said in the last <laughs> two minutes. By the way, I'm just joking around. <laughs> 
my my intention here is just to bring awareness. I I want to be a guy. I don't want <clears throat> I don't want the the fame, the fortune of breaking the Starbucks conspiracy. I just want to bring awareness. If they if you know the AP news, or if you wanted some major news channel to come interview me, and yeah, I, th- I mean I would do it. But I mean. Yeah, I mean, I take. The I time would take and... the time to do it. I I would tell them the same thing. I'm telling you, people. I listen. I do it for the people. I do it for the awareness. I don't do it for the fame. I don't do it for the fortune. I just do it to let you folks know that you're all getting scammed at Christmas time by Starbucks. <laughs> and I am man. Hey, if it isn't bad enough that most that most capital uh, capitalist outlets are trying to scam you at Christmas time, you know, Starbucks of all of them's trying to get you. Yeah. I mean, I I I pretty much stick to my guns and say that all coffee shops are trying to scam you 365 days a year by charging you 250 for a small cup of coffee mm-hmm. and about 16 bucks for a large. Mm-hmm. Want to get cream and sugar in that, add another $14 and you're out the door for the low price of $30 and with minimum wage being somewhere around like 815 here in Ohio you know basically just to make it to work and have the caffeinated energy you just you're you're done at that point mm-hmm. you've, you've spent you've spent <laughs> so <laughs> and and there goes our our chance at ever having Starbucks sponsor this this podcast but uh yeah I mean Starbucks don't get me wrong I, I love you but you're probably just way too big uh I don't really think Starbucks sponsors anyone because they just exist and they don't need advertising <laughs> you know um, you don't know maybe they're maybe we're reaching a a niche market that they're like you know what? we've been wanting to get into that but any any chance I think Starbucks I think Starbucks ads are like their own social media accounts. Like that's how Starbucks advertises. It's like, oh hey, follow us on social media. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a two cents off coupon next time we have pumpkin spice in stock, you know. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Th- 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 that's that's about how it goes for the for the bucks. But <laughs> any other thoughts on the Starbucks conspiracy other than the fact that they're ripping everybody off? Yeah. <sighs> No, I think I I think I got them right where I wanted them today. Yeah. Said my piece out to the masses. Been holding that one in. So there you folks go. Starbucks right. conspiracy theory. There you go. Hey, but hey, for a little bit of context, for if you're just jumping in here for the first time in our last episode where we talked about the Scarlet Letter, which you should definitely check out if you haven't yet. Zach did mention that Starbucks is his favorite coffee. So it is, that yeah. just needs to be known. It is it my ha- favorite to be go-to known. coffee. Yeah, when I just need coffee. Yes. So yeah, when when you're not getting scammed by the Christmas. Party. Yeah, exactly. When I'm not. Yeah, around any other time of the year except winter. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But hey, man, oh, man. tell me about uh, what's going on with cereal today. Oh man. So anyway, I don't know why I, I got into this the other day, but it was in the midst of my my sports rant. For some reason or another, I transitioned and started talking about cereal with my coworkers the other day. And and my thoughts on cereal are this. Why go through the time and the effort and the baking and the, you know, the ingredients in order to make cereal into something that is crunchy and delicious? And from what I've heard, it's pretty good for your teeth because it sharpens your chompers. Um, not scientifically proven, but, I've you know, I've heard per source um, that it might just do that. 
And when things are crunchy, you know, there's a satisfaction in it, right? When, you know, when you eat celery, you don't eat celery because celery tastes good. You eat celery because you like the feeling of the power of your jaw chomping down on something and getting that sound of the, right? That's that's why you eat celery. That's why everyone eats celery. Or, or because, you know, you're just trying to uh, get rid of that dad bod, which we also talked about last episode. <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, you know, I got to admit to the world, I am a dry cereal eater. Did you oh. know this, Zach? Have I ever told you this? I Have think I, I did this? know this, but you're the second person in my life that is a dry cereal eater. So I'm a, I'm a dry cereal eater and, and I think the dry cereal is, is fantastic. Now, the reason I eat my cereal dry is is because when I was a kid, I did have some issues with the old milk and uh, didn't like me. Still to this day, I mean, I might be minorly lactose intolerant. doesn't keep me from eating things like nachos and putting cheese on cheeseburgers. Uh, but sometimes it does mess with my stomach, so I don't know. Maybe I got some issues with dairy. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but back in when I was a kid, milk used to just, it, it would just come out. You know, it just, it would go down and come right back up. And so I never got into the habit of drinking milk as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up, just the whole family was having cereal. Everyone had cereal. People put milk in their cereal. But me, I I avoided milk. I avoided it like the plague. So I just had dry cereal. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like that's the way that this should be eaten, right? And so when I see people take something that's crunchy and delicious and has a nice little snap or a nice little pop do while you're chewing it, and then what you do basically is you take you take a a bottle of this white fluid and you drown what was once crunchy and delicious and delectable and then you drown it and you make it soggy and sloppy and nasty. I think to myself I'm like this is a crime. Like like this is I mean think about that poor cereal sitting in that bowl in its complete and perfect state only just to be milked down and drowned and have to sit in there. And I feel so bad for the pieces at the bottom of the bowl that are just there, just taking in all the sloppiness. And I think it's like, ah, what a crime. And I think what's happened is the milk industry has bamboozled us. Just like Starbucks has bamboozled us as oh, at Christmas time. Yes, double conspiracy the, theory episode. The, I love it. The, the dairy industry has bamboozled us that milk and cereal go together when in actuality they don't, okay? They don't. And I'm going to prove to you why. <laughs> okay. And you might you might like my proof, you might not, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And I got into uh, a little discussion with some other guys on a different podcast on this same thing. But this has just been in my head. I can't get it out of my head. It's also a topic that makes it into uh, some of the writing that I do. Um, and I've got, I've got discourses about dry cereal. Maybe you'll like them, maybe you won't. But here's what I'm thinking, right? Uh, uh, my friend Josh illuminated me to this idea that, hey, you know, it was probably the milk companies that just marketed that, hey, You eat milk and cereal together. And it makes sense, right? Because cereal is a relatively inexpensive breakfast item, so a lot of people buy cereal. A lot less people now, now that all of our research on sugar and how terribly awful it is for you is coming out. But, you know, for a long time, you know, cereal was a staple at at the breakfast table. And now we're at a point where, you know, it's like, okay, people are buying cereal. What's something else that could go with cereal? Milk, right? We need to sell these cartons of milk because how many people are going home and and downing a gallon of milk 
on a regular basis, right? Not a lot of people outside of children are just down in, down in milk. So how do you keep people involved in the dairy industry? You tell them, hey, milk and cereal, it's like a match made in heaven. You know, milk and cereal are like the Bonnie and Clyde of the food industry, right? Not only are they meant to be together, it's also a criminal thing, just like Bonnie and Clyde. And so, <laughs> okay. Anyway, here's my proof why they shouldn't go together. Most things that are crunchy, we don't want to make soggy, right? Because when you make something that was once crunchy, soggy, it just takes away from why would you make it crunchy anyway, right? Why go through all the effort? Because to make something crunchy, typically you got to bake it or dry it out or it has to go through some type of processing. Most things are relatively soft, right, in their natural state. And I'm thinking about bread, right? When we have bread, if you want to have toast, you go through the process of toasting it so that it'll be nice and crunchy. You don't toast it and then pour a gallon of milk on it just to make it soggy again. If you wanted soggy bread, you wouldn't toast it in the first place, right? You'd save yourself some time, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to water up your toast and make it soggy. Why would you make it toast in the first place, right? And so I think it's just this big scam by the cereal industry, by the milk industry, I'm sorry, trying to sell more milk for a longer period of time so that, hey, you know, we just kind of keep keep it rolling, keep it moving. Uh -huh. And that's just kind of my theory. But uh, I have failed. Um, I've failed my children in making them dry cereal purists because, you know, I, I did. I raised them on dry cereal. You know, I, I wouldn't put milk in that. Not only, not only is it faster when pouring the cereal, you also don't have to deal with nearly as much spilled milk. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. But then my wife started to sneak that milk in there. She just started sneaking in the beginning. She was just pouring it at the bottom of the bowl, you know, so I couldn't see it. Because, you know, sometimes when I see things that go against the ways of Cody, I'm just like, hey, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to knock that off. I don't, I don't get behind that. You know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no dictator or tyrannical leader in here. But, you know, when I see something that I think will affect my kids negatively in the long term, I got to step in, you know. Um but I think there was a little snuck in the bottom of the bowls for a while. And then I just saw they get a little more full, you know, a little like halfway full. And now my, my kids are at the point where they're basically putting cereal in their milk. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've failed to make my kids cereal purists. But hey, I still stand by everyone should eat dry cereal. Man, dude, that's a, that's a, a heavy... Uh, Heavy torch to carry, man. You gotta. Hey. I feel like there's a lot more people out there that eat cereal with milk than there are that eat dry cereal. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean that's why it's an uphill battle. It is I an mean, uphill am, battle for you, man. I, you know, but hey, not all things that that are unpopular are wrong. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> now, as a milk and cereal drinker myself. Ugh. I right. do want to say that sometimes the cereal is a little more enjoyable when it's a little softer. And there are a few grain cereals that I enjoy a lot more when they get a little soggier. But it's like this okay. balancing act. So, like, I don't like them hard. Like, grape nuts comes to mind. I know I sound okay. like a... 80 year old man right now but grape nuts is one of my favorite <laughs> cereals i don't know what it is about it i love grape nuts 
Oh, I did when I was like 12 too. So this is not a recent thing. This is a lifelong love of grape nuts. But okay. I found early on that because I was I was brought up with milk in the cereal. It was always in there. Mm. Of course. And I found though that when we would run out, this would only happen when we'd run out of all the sugary cereals. I would have to climb up to the top of our pantry and grab my dad's box of grape nuts and climb all the way back down, put it in my bowl. And I found that if I drank or if I didn't drink, if I ate the cereal right as I put the milk in, so I pour the milk in and I eat the, the grape nuts, it's like eating gravel. It is so, it tastes good. It is, you know, grape nuts are pretty tough but without man, the cereal, dude, without the it's milk. It's like it is. crunching up shards of glass and trying to eat that. It's just so uncomfortable to eat grape nuts that, like, fresh. And so I found, though, that the longer I let it sit in the milk, the more enjoyable grape nuts became because they got a little softer and a little more soft. And there came there there came a point of diminishing returns where then it would get too soft and soggy and it was just like eating like oatmeal at that point. But there for for me, grape nuts is that cereal that's like there's a window of sogginess that it is supposed to be enjoyed at. You know, like like for me, steak. There's a certain window of doneness that's like this is the best. This is so good. Mm. Oh, yeah. This is the best steak I've ever had. That that's for me. Grape nuts has the same effect, and same with like mini wheats or whatever. But I'll say one of the most enjoyable things as a milk and cereal person is when you finish off the cereal and you look down and you have a bowl of sugary milk just waiting to be drank. And it's yeah. even better when you had like a chocolate cereal, like the Oh, what's it the fruity pebbles the chocolate pebble one oh dude like you finish that thing off and now you got a whole bowl of chocolate milk waiting for you oh man dude, so my good st- my stomach i'm starting <laughs> to feel sick right now i don't know oh, dude, I'm man, just, dude. i don't know i'm getting a little queasy i don't know if i can finish this podcast Listen, i don't oh, think man. your illness should should diminish my my enjoyment of that sugary goodness at the very end you just kind of you know it's like a dessert at the end dude you just finished a huge bowl of cereal you're packed full of sugar and wheat and whatever else they process that stuff with and you're like man (laughs) like i couldn't eat another bite and then you look at your bowl and you're like huh but i'll drink that (laughs) and you just gulp that down runs down your chin onto your shirt then you're now you're ready for school (laughs) so to me that was like the 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 best man was drinking a bowl of whatever i just ate at the very end (laughs) hey man you know to each their own honestly everyone you guys can eat whatever you want i just want you to next time you sit down with a bowl of cereal and i just want you to think before you pour that milk in, I want I want you to think before you take that cereal on a long suffering journey. I, I mean, I just I just want you to think about it. You know, make it 
Yeah, just think about being being a little bit of a purist, you know. I just I, that's what I want you to think about. I, I want you to think about, it. and I mean that. Just think about how much better it would be for the environment if we weren't, you know, putting so much milk in our cereal, you know, because because cows, you know, they're they're tooting up a storm and, and really they're really hurting that ozone. I'm I'm just saying. Just think about it. Yeah, you know. I mean, <laughs> you are the second person, like I said, in my life that does that, and it's it's. There are times where I'm like, you know what? You save a little money by not buying cereal or by not buying milk. Uh, maybe I'll try it, but I, I'm not a big cereal guy anymore. That's the thing. I don't have kids yet, so and I just don't really eat yeah. breakfast. So the, my cereal days yeah. are a little behind me. Yeah, man, I don't think I had cereal till I had, you know, till my kids turned like three, four years old. Then it was just like, oh, yeah, let's start getting cereal again. You know, like this <laughs> yeah. is real. Remember quick. cereal? That was great. <laughs> because here's the truth. Here's the truth. This is why this is why parents do cereal. And, and maybe this will make me sound like a bad parent, but I'm just being honest with everybody for all the prospective parents out there. Is you do cereal because what's going to happen is you're going to sleep in a little bit on a Saturday morning. And there's nothing easier than just you know getting up with the kids mm-hmm. and they're hungry for breakfast you pour some cereal you turn that tv on and, and maybe you go to the couch in the family room or maybe you just pass out right there at the kitchen table for a few more minutes mm. and it's just like you get up real quick it's it takes no longer than a quick bathroom break and then you can get right back to sleep and that is why i buy cereal for those quick breakfasts on Saturday morning when the kids come storming in at quarter to seven and it's like, oh, man, I stayed up till one again on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cereal it is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I can follow that, man. I, one day I'll be in those shoes, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, yeah, that's just a little bit of my my thoughts on dry cereal. But... That th- mm. that's not that's not all that important. What is important is hey, we want to get you guys updated on some Steel Lake Studio stuff. So it's time for our Steel Lake Studio update for you guys. Zach, do you have any news coming out of the SLS that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, as those of you who purchased or got a hold of a copy of Nightmare at the Fair, if you guys read to the end, which hopefully you all did, you guys would have seen a little teaser for the next book in the Terror Town series. Mm-hmm. Something Strange at Grandma's House. That book will be coming out very soon. I don't want to say the date just yet because there's some back-end things that are still getting done, but things are moving along very smoothly. We kind of took a break with the the holidays and everything, and so, but we're, we're back up and running again. This one should be out. Um, the plan is to get a few more out this year. So I there's a lot coming in the way of the Terra Town series. So if you guys really enjoyed the first one, the second one is hot on the heels of the first, and then there'll be some more after that for this year. So lots of Terra Town stuff coming out. Be on the lookout for any updates, either on the website or on our Facebook page. We will keep you guys up to speed on when the next book will officially be coming out. But something strange at Grandma's house. I'll, I'll, if you guys continue to listen and maybe in the next episode or the one after I'll get you guys the the blurb and let you guys know what that one's about. Ooh. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. What do you got for us, awesome. man? 
Uh, just I want to just let everybody know, uh, it, like Zach mentioned, getting on the newsletter is simple. You, there is a link in the description of this podcast, but what I, what I am going to do is I'm going to make it even easier for you guys because I know maybe you're just listening and you don't want to scroll through to the episode notes or maybe you're driving or something, but it's really easy to remember. You can either do it now or whenever you get a chance. It's just steellakestudio.com slash email, right? We talk about the email list, our company, Steel Lake Studio, steellakestudio.com slash email. We make it real easy for you. You just fill out a contact form there. All it is is your email address. We're not getting any other information from you. We're not selling your information. We just want to be in touch with you on all of the latest things coming out from Steel Lake Studio. Mm -hmm. So it's real easy, real simple. If you want to have the best experience with Steel Lake Studio, that is the way to go. And uh, also, too, if you head over there while you're hanging out at SteelLakeStudio.com, check out The Haggard Odyssey. By the time this episode goes up, I will have my first episode of 2021 of The Haggard Odyssey going up. I am sharing a little bit about a new direction for that podcast. It's not necessarily a huge shift in direction, but I am going to be doing uh, a little bit of a different format. I'm still going to be opening up the podcast with some type of story, but I'm going to start trying to connect those stories from from life growing up or life experience, connecting those with some type of contemporary contextualization of something going on in the world today or some of my thoughts in order to be able to have some type of talking point with all of you who might be going through something or just have a question about a certain idea. I'll have something different every week and then also kind of be sharing some stories from whether it's things that I've read or from going around the world that I find are interesting and maybe maybe have something in there every once in a while where we'll share a little bit of a a new look at some type of ancient myth or story or fable that many know but maybe we just don't talk about as much as we should so that's kind of where I'm taking the Haggard Odyssey it's going to be Still storytelling, but also exploring things within culture, society, and other stories told by other people as well. So I'm really looking forward to this year. Uh, The podcast, the episodes might go a little longer. They might go closer to like a half an hour, maybe even 40 minutes. So if you really like listening and hanging out with me... Well, that'll be a great podcast for you. And if you don't, well, I mean, let me know how I can improve. And we will try to make it better. So uh, thanks, guys, for for sticking with us to this point. I am ready to transition into our little fun segment here. This is going to be a quick one for you guys today. What we like to do is we like to just kind of have some type of fun little silly icebreaker type of game or discussion that we have. And today, you know, a lot of times we think of places in our stories that we would like to go. A couple of months ago, we had a listener write in and ask us which fictional worlds we would like to go into, right? Like you go into the world of Narnia, but in that world you could still die. There were some rules and all of that, and uh, I believe I chose Middle Earth, and Zach, I believe you chose Star Wars. Yes. And and so, you know, a lot of times we always look at the positives. We always look at the positives of places we would like to go. And I was thinking about, and I was like, oh, hey, you know, with Treasure Island being our main topic today, I'm thinking, you know, I would, I would always like to go on a sea adventure 
But the more I learn about pirates, I learn that I would never, ever want to be a pirate, right? Like, <laughs> like the romanticized version and the stories is great, but in real life, if you were a pirate, that just sounds like a terrible life. Oh, yeah. All that <laughs> so I, nasty... Go ahead. Uh, What's that? What do they get when they don't eat enough vitamin C? Scurvy. Scurvy. Yeah. Scurvy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I thought, no, oh, I'd never want to be a pirate. That just sounds terrible. So I thought, let's have a segment where we talk about fantasy worlds, whether it's from a story we know, one we like or we don't like, that we would never want to be in. What is what is something that we would never want to be in? A place where we loathe, we don't find it interesting, and if it was our reality, we would just be miserable. So, Zach, I'm going to have you go first and share out of all the stories and settings of stories that you can think of today and maybe we'll have different ones down the road who knows what is a place a storytelling setting that you would absolutely never want to be in so what i chose kind of stemmed from some discussions we've been having recently but (laughs) it's also it comes from what i actually thought when i read this book because it's a place that i enjoy reading about I think it's cool. I think the story that it all takes place in is very interesting. But even when I read this book, I thought I would never want to live there. That sounds horrible. What I am talking about is Ready Player One. And for those who haven't read it, it basically, and I think I don't know if I described this on the podcast, but it's, I think it says it even on the front of the book. It's basically like the Matrix meets Willy Wonka. And mm-hmm. the real world is overpopulated and people basically live in the slums and just the life is just like overcrowded. It's like Wally, but if all the people still lived on Earth. So it's just everything's mm-hmm. trashed. So uh, people basically spend their entire time in this virtual world and inside this virtual world you can go anywhere you can be anyone anywhere you can do anything and that all sounds great on paper but the Mm -hmm. more i thought about it and the more i thought about myself as a gamer and i think when i was younger that idea (laughs) of putting on a headset and literally becoming the character I wanted to be and to go and live another life basically and to actually experience those things rather than just playing it through another character on a screen, but to be that character. I think that's the dream of a lot of gamers. And the more I thought about it as I got older, I realized my options are I either exist in a world that is terrible, stinks, nothing going on, overcrowded trashed or i basically spend my life in a fake world that i know is fake yeah i get to experience cool things and talk to people but at the end of the day it's not real as much as my senses and the way the interface interacts with my body it's it's kind of like the matrix where the whole scene with um oh now the guy's name slipped my mind but He's sitting there eating the steak. And he's like, I know the steak is fake. And I know that like this wine is isn't real. But you know what? Like, I'm okay with that. And like yeah. I'm the guy that's like, I'm not okay with that because I know that it's fake. Yeah. And so 
I think Ready Player One to me would be a terrible world to live in. <laughs> terrible. Sounds awful. Both sides. Sounds awful. So yeah. that is that is my choice for a world I would never want to live in is anything to do with Ready Player One. And please don't even get me started on the characters because I would not ever want to meet any of those characters because they are not interesting to me. Yeah, I, I can agree with you on that being kind of a miserable place. And and I think that part of the story, whether it was intended by Klein or not, part of the story does kind of make the reader be like, man, I'm, I'm glad this isn't a reality. Because even though virtual reality is cool, it's cool as a thing to do. It's not cool as a lifestyle. Yeah. And in Ready Player One, virtual reality is their lifestyle, right? Yes. And, you know, you have the... The idea that in some ways it kind of can cure some of the woes of poverty and, and all of that, but at the same time, you can't replace physical interaction. That is one of the themes of the book, right? You can't replace physical interaction, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yes, I agree with you. I, I do not want that to be our future. I don't want that to be where virtual reality goes. Um, but I think with the with how people react to like motion sickness and stuff and stuff of that nature, I, I think we're a far away away from really getting there, yeah you know yeah no I because because I I don't I don't think m- most people's equilibrium would be able to do that for more than a set period of time mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah but you know I, as I was thinking about this I I actually you know, was thinking from the vein of, right, I would never actually want to be a pirate. But, you know, you know, when I really got down to it, I was like, you know, I'm not going to go go in and say I wouldn't want to be part of Treasure Island because this is a story I actually think I would have fun in. Like, if I were Jim Hawkins, I, I could get behind this, right? If I knew I was going to survive in the end, I think that would be a great story, right? Because it's a classic. However... You know, the world of seafaring was on my mind, and, and aquatic settings were on my mind, and then it came to me. You know, I would never want to be part of the Little Mermaid universe. You know, and, and it, it, goes, it goes very well with the theme of Little Mermaid, right? Like, Ariel starts the, the movie off by singing, she wishes she could be part of that world, right? She doesn't even want to be a mermaid, right? She's, she's a princess. <laughs> yeah. So... So it's like, hey, you know, if if a princess in Mermaid World with King Triton as her father, and she basically has the most privileged of lifestyles, and Mer in Mer Universe doesn't even want to be a mermaid, being a mermaid must be absolutely miserable, you know. <laughs> And it's just like think about it from being like a merman, mermaid, whatever it is. You you, you have those fins, those those that dorsal fin. That you have no, I'm sorry, not a dorsal fin, whatever, whatever tail fin is what I meant to say, uh, swimming around. But you have arms, like arms and a tail fin, just don't really go together. You know, it's like it's, it's like you have these really mobile and and really useful gadgets that are arms, and then you're just given this thing you swim around in, and just it can't do anything else other than like you move water around right if you go above the water maybe you could splash some people real good in the face <laughs> you're pretty mobile you're fast under the water but hey you know i'd take a pair of legs any day so you know what i can really empathize with ariel because i get it you know being a mermaid slash merman would just really suck and I get really sad whenever I see little kids going around in the aerial costumes and they decide to go with the costume 
where she's wearing the tail fin. And I'm like, kid, did you not watch the movie? She didn't want that life. That was the bad life. But just wear the the costume with the legs, you know, the, the hair, the red hair, all that stuff is fine. But, you know, putting the tail fin on, you're missing out on the point. Mm. And so I can get it. You know, I wouldn't want to live in King Triton Dumb or whatever, whatever. It's, is it Atlantis? I think it is Atlantis. That's supposed to be Atlantis, which Atlantis would be way cooler mm-hmm. than a bunch of mermaids and mermans and then, you know, talking fish. Like, I, I that was kind of a lame version of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me, that's my world. I wouldn't want to be part of the Little Mermaid universe. And especially, like, come on, Ursula? If Ursula's swimming around the sea Ugh. just doing, like, underwater voodoo black magic type of stuff, that's terrifying, man. You know, that's that's pretty scary. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. There's a lot of things wrong, I think, with the mermaid universe. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of things Starting wrong. with biological and then just moving on from there. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things just that wouldn't work. Half, half human, yeah. half fish. And that from, like, a practical standpoint. Like, I mean, you know, they don't portray the gills on a mermaid slash merman. But, I mean, you would realistically also have to have gills in mm-hmm. there. You can't be breathing underwater without any gills. I know that they, they don't necessarily make the best aesthetic for a Disney movie, but, hey, it's, we got to be yeah, practical. Yeah, they took some creative liberties that I questioned. And... But, yeah, I don't think I would enjoy being a merman or it really anything mm-hmm. a part of that. I mean, you would get super pruney too. I mean, yeah. Let me go. Goodness. I gracious. mean, my hand gets pruney when I'm like washing my hands for longer than yeah. you know twenty five seconds. So, being underwater in salt water too. Oh, can you imagine how dehydrated you'd be? Yeah. And it couldn't it couldn't be very good for the skin either, right? That the lack of vitamin D from the sun. Yeah. It would just it'd be really bad. Everyone would probably be have... translucent down there. It's yeah. yeah. It just. <laughs> Yeah, and the, and the thing about how tough it would be to eat, right? Like, what do you do? You swim up top to eat some food, or you just That's you sit true. down what under do the they water? Eat? Because they're friends with all the fish, so yeah, I'm right. not sure exactly. what, what, what are they eating. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. I I have a lot of questions for, and, and maybe that's why you know what was his name, Sebastian, the conductor lobster guy, who's who's like also the servant. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, you have your servants are all the lobsters because you're like, hey, you know what, you do your job right, or you're going in the steamer next, pal. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they eat lobster. Maybe they do. That, hey, that makes they sense. Eat pretty well. That's then, what I'd know? put my money on because because he was like the lead butler, and my guess is since they're using lobsters as their servants, yeah. That's that's probably what yeah. they eat as well, because they they put them on they put them on watch like, hey, you know, you you might not get paid for this, but you know, you get you get there's to live. A, yeah, there's an incentive. Ooh, the so, darker side of the Little yes. Mermaid. <laughs> you know, uh, we we could have potentially look into rewriting the Little Mermaid, and I think we could come up with a pretty good dark comedy if, if I go. do say so myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tales of Aquatic Adventure are the theme today here on Parallel Quest. We just finished up talking about The Little Mermaid and how I would never want to live in that world, but that is not our main topic for today. Our main topic is talking about what is one of historically the greatest adventure novels ever to come out. Mm. And not only is this a novel that is good for adult readers, but it can be good for young readers as well. And we are talking about the well-known story, Treasure Island by none other than Robert Louis Stevenson. And so, Zach, I'm just going to ask you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Treasure Island? Oh, man. Um, definitely Long John Silver and not the restaurant, but the man. 
<laughs> you know, he comes to mind. I think of the black spot. Love that's ah, a yes, good the one. black spot. And then, yes, that's a good one. And then I think of Muppets Treasure Island because that's probably one of my favorite versions of this. This story is, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is told in many genres. It's a story that is mm-hmm. almost universal to pick a pick a genre, pick a location, pick a theme. This story can be transplanted into it, and I think that is a testament to the 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 nuts and bolts of how the story is told yeah yeah i i i i think too like long john silver automatically comes to my mind at first and it's funny you mentioned the black spot because that's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie Mm. Uh, i mean in the book but also i i just think too of like it's it's weird because it's also it's this reality check for every kid who wants to go on a nautical adventure or every kid who wants to be a pirate well you should read treasure island mm-hmm. before you decide that that's your fantasy yeah. um because because really i mean it it paints this picture of like every kid's dream to go out on these pirate adventures well maybe they're not all they're cracked up to be mm. um so I, I think it's a just a classic tale um of and of course you think of the treasure map x marks the spot all that type yeah. of stuff there's so much tied with this and so uh, you know i think the the thing that we want to do here is to give you guys a little background on what exactly treasure island was how did it come to be when was it released and a few fun facts to set the stage for treasure island but before we do that i just want to give you guys a quick story synopsis of how treasure island is set up and tease the conclusion a little bit i won't give everything away in case anyone wants to go and read it who hasn't read it before and then come back and check this podcast out later uh whichever you prefer but treasure island is a story of a young man named jim hawkins who is actually having to house a very unfortunate guest an unfortunate guest by the name of billy bones an old pirate who comes and starts staying in his family's bed and breakfast and he's kind of an unpleasant guest but they let him stay anyway because his father has passed away and his mother and he are really struggling to make ends meet at the inn that he lives in and also does business out of and one day billy bones is is given a visit by a, another pirate named Black Dog. And Black Dog meets with Billy Bones and he puts something in his hand. And inside Billy Bones' hand is none other than the Black Spot. The Black Spot, which means that soon this man is going to meet his end. His death is going to come. His pursuers are going to come and get him. And so he is very scared, he is terrified, and he actually ends up going into cardiac arrest or has an aneurysm or something of that nature, but he just randomly (laughs) dies, and he's gone. And And so Jim Hawkins and his mother are like, what are we supposed to do? And on his deathbed they decide that the best thing they can do with Billy Bones is sneak into that mysterious chest he's been been carrying around with him, and they find in there a map, a map that leads to a hidden treasure. 
And so Jim Hawkins, he runs and he goes and tells the only people he can trust, Dr. Trelawney, I mean, it's Squire Trelawney yeah. and Dr. Livesey. Yes. Livesey or whatever it, I don't know how to pronounce it. And they get a crew together after their inn is raided by some pirates. They get a crew together and they're hightailing it to the seven seas and they're going to find this missing island and they are going to get the ancient treasure. And so they have to get together a crew, a crew that is made up of all sorts of very, very suspicious deckhands and a very, very suspicious cook by the name of Long John Silver. Although, doesn't he go by like an alias before being revealed as Long John Silver? Oh. Am I am I right in thinking that? Man, dude, it's been it's been a minute. I think he might. Those fans out there of Treasure Island will let us know, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, well, guys, I was doing pretty good until I butchered <laughs> this because it's been a while since I've read it. Um, but, all right, it goes by the name of Long John Silver. He is the cook. And then one day when Jim Hawkins is below deck hiding in an apple barrel, he finds out that all these mysterious deckhands and Long John Silver himself are a crew of pirates. They're no good baddie bad bads, right? These are these are the bad dudes. Mm -hmm. And their plan is to take over the ship and kill all the good guys and take the treasure for themselves. And so there becomes a race between Jim Hawkins and the good guys being Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey to find the treasure before the evil pirate crew can on this island. And there are twists and turns. And they end up finding the mysterious treasure but it doesn't go without some obstacles provided by long john silver our very very powerful antagonist and there is a bout between he and jim hawkins and hawkins feels betrayed because long john silver was kind of like a father to him while on the ship but betrayed him he got his he got jim hawkins trust only to lose it in the end and try to rob him and they are not able to bring Long John Silver down. He's able to get away with a bag of treasure and escape. But in the end, Jim Hawkins and the squire and the doctor end up very, very wealthy men by getting most of the treasure, but leaving quite a bit behind. And Jim Hawkins says he will never return to get the rest. And so that is, in a nutshell, Treasure Island. Uh, I said I wasn't going to spoil the end there, uh, but then I did. <laughs> Um, so I'm sorry about that. If you guys, <laughs> I just You're on I couldn't a roll, stop man. at yeah. that. I couldn't stop at that point. Hopefully, I wasn't too overly emphatic or dramatic with that summary. Did I miss anything? Zach? I would say you were very <laughs> swashbuckling there, man. I <laughs> okay, thank yeah. you. I mean, it was very. Good. I did. That was a very good. I was summary. Oh, thank you. I was trying to be rather flamboyant as I went through that summary of the, uh, of the Treasure Island. But hey, th I'm going to ask you a question. Did you know that before Treasure Island was known as Treasure Island, it was actually originally called The Sea Cook, a story for boys? Did you know that? I did not know that. That is very interesting. Yeah, I found that out in my discovery today as I was doing some research. I thought that, oh, hey, that is a very not interesting title. It's a good thing they changed it. Yes, <laughs> so. yes. I, it, it sounds like a, like a boy magazine or like a, like a Boy Scouts like pamphlet. 
Yeah, like why do I want to be reading about a cook? Yeah. I don't care about a cook. Exactly. Give me give me a swashbuckler, all right? I don't want no cook. Yeah, give me some right? excitement. So, so it makes sense that they changed the name, but it was like many, many, many stories in the late 1800s. It was originally published as a serialized story, which if you read the chapters of this book, it actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm a book that is written in the first-person perspective from Jim Hawkins as he basically chronicles the events from when he was a boy to when he was a teenager. And he goes on this adventure to get this hidden treasure. And so each chapter feels like it could have been released in a magazine, Mm. right? Um, And so this came out in Young Folks magazine in the years 1881 to 1882 and then was published as a standalone novel in 1883 and was later renamed to Treasure Island, written by a very well-known author named Robert Louis Stevenson, who is also known for writing a very well-known book, a very well-known short little book. Do you know what I am thinking of, Zach? I believe you're referring to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Absolutely, that's what I'm thinking of. That's the other one that he's written that most people probably know. Um, he has also written A Child's Garden of Verses, Kidnapped, and, oh, say, sorry, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Heiss's other noted work here. But I do want to point out that he died at a rather young age. He was only 44 when he passed away. And when he passed away, his family in 1918 must have been really hurting for cash because they sold off all of his original manuscripts Jeez. of his work. Dang. <laughs> And the original manuscript for Treasure Island is lost forever. So if anybody out there is holding on to what they believe to be is the original manuscript of Treasure Island, I am sure you'll be a very wealthy person, and I am sure you're probably not listening to this podcast. But, (laughs) hey, you never know. So, a couple fun facts for you guys here is that in the 19th century, there were two types of naval stories. There was the Navy Yarn, which the Navy Yarn type of story is one that takes this very adequate seafaring hero and takes him on a series of adventures where he runs into certain obstacles and overcomes them. When I think of Navy Yarn, I think that a story that would be compared to the Navy Yarn type would be that of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, right? You have Captain Nemo who is basically stomping all the hardest obstacles of the sea in the face, right? He's got this super fast submarine that goes underwater and you know they're they're just doing all sorts of cool things in 20,000 leagues under the sea can you think of any stories that would f- categorize under that the navy yarn mm. um seafaring adventures where you just have this very adequate um sailor who just kind of goes around and dominates the sea um, <clears throat> see i was gonna say sea wolf but okay. i wouldn't by jack london but the guy that runs the ship is he's competent and he's very much like a wolf kind of man, very brutish, but he, I mean, he conquers the sea by just complete brute force. So maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe that could be considered a Navy yarn. It's not as whimsical, I would say as uh, treasure Island or Mm -hmm. 20,000 leagues under the sea. Right. 
Right. Well, Treasure Island, I don't think, would be considered uh, Navy yarn. Uh, so so there's two genres. Okay. There is the Navy yarn, which is more like 20,000 Leagues. And then there is the Desert Island Romance, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. A story about being stuck on a desert island in the sea and you got to find a way out. Um, and in the case of Treasure Island, get off the island with the treasure you came there to find. Mm-hmm a story that can be compared to the Desert Island Romance, even though it wasn't 19th century, it was uh, 18th century, would be something like Robinson Crusoe, Mm, which is a great story if you read the abridged version. (laughs) And... And uh, and actually very pivotal in not only adventure stories, but novels in general. Um, even though I've knocked on Robinson Crusoe before, and I will continue to because it's just such a tough read to get through because it gets really, really boring after he crashes on the island and basically calculates how he like counted rocks for 50 days. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a rough read. But uh, it did set a lot of precedents for stories like Treasure Island, which came out, you know, about 150 years later. <clears throat> so Treasure Island would be considered a desert island romance. Uh, Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson, he wasn't afraid to admit that he was influenced by the works of other writers uh, to concoct elements within his story, such as borrowing ideas from authors like Edgar Allan Poe and Washington Irving. And what I mean by that is that in Robert Louis Stevenson's work, the clock with the skeleton hand that he writes about was actually very influenced by... um, a work of Edgar Allan Poe's and in you know it's it's interesting to me that he was willing to admit this because most of the time especially in in like the 19th century people really weren't going out there and saying like oh yeah this person influenced my work like there was there was like no credit given right if if you did something and people liked it you weren't giving credit to other people it was like hey I did this uh, which which I think is really cool. I think it's cool to be like, hey, you know, these other authors gave me these ideas. They were kind of my inspiration. Um, and I thought that that was pretty cool. <clears throat> All right. So, also, in the book, Treasure Island, there are actually five real-life pirates who are referenced. And, Zach, I'm going to ask if you've ever heard of any of these pirates. First up on the list, William Kidd. Kidd with two Ds. You ever heard of William Kidd? I have not. No. Yeah, neither did I. Uh, how about Blackbeard? Yes, I have heard of Blackbeard. Ah, Blackbeard. The infamous Blackbeard, right? Everyone's heard of Blackbeard. Blackbeard's even in like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, I think. Yeah. Isn't that Johnny Depp's dad? Is Johnny Depp's dad Blackbeard? No, he's not. Uh, I don't know. He's not. He's not. It, uh, he's not. Blackbeard's the a different treasure or The pirate that's in um, uh, Princess Bride. That is great Pirate Roberts. Yeah. The Dread Dread Pirate yes. Robbage, that's what it is. Yes. And then another pirate, tell me if you ever heard of this guy, Edward England. Ever heard of Edward, Edward England? Edward England, no, have not. Ah, Eddie Ingalls didn't make the list for mm-hmm. you, huh? All right, how about this one, Howell Davis? No, that guy sounds like a car salesman. He definitely sounds like a guy who you couldn't trust, right? <laughs> like, guy comes up to you, he says, hi, my name is Howell. It's like, oh, <laughs> What are you, some type of werewolf or something? Okay, get out of here, pal. You know? <laughs> something like that, yeah. 
And then the last one is Bartholomew Roberts. Ever heard of a Bartholomew Roberts? Just the Dread Pirate Roberts. You know what? I'm curious. We might have to do some research, find out if the Dread Pirate Roberts was inspired by none other than Bartholomew, who was a real-life pirate. Could be. We'll have to look into it. My guess is probably not, because Roberts is a rather popular last name, but hey, you never Mm -hmm. know. All right, so here's what I want to point out, too, because I think this is a big reason why many people are familiar with Treasure Island. I I would be willing to say that most people's exposure and experience with Treasure Island is probably because of some type of modernized adaptation of Treasure Island in a more popular form of media, right? Um, So I'm just going to go through and just share the numbers of how many adaptations there has been of Treasure Island in various different formats. So first thing I'm going to say, English language films. Are you looking at the list right now, Zach? Uh, Yes, I am. Yep. Okay. Because I was going to do a little over-under with you. But since you're looking at the list, I can't do that. Eight English language films, which I thought, hey, that's a lot of films, right? Foreign language films. This is what surprised me the most because uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was English, so the book is originally written in English. This isn't a translation into English. There are 10 foreign language films of Treasure Island, which I thought to be quite interesting. Uh, There are, and then beyond those films, these are like feature films types of productions. And then there are four television films which is like oh hey wow there's so many adaptations that they even categorized the feature films from the television films and i thought that's insane right (laughs) oh my gosh then we have here 14 television adaptations now this ranges from single episodes to full-blown series and there actually were quite a few series of treasure island which i thought wow that's crazy like how many times can you make a series of treasure island and the answer to that is quite a few <laughs> uh so so treasure island appears on tv a lot this is probably to me the most surprising because <laughs> I mean, how many different times you got to write the screenplay? <laughs> there are there are 13 adaptations of Treasure Island for the theater. Now, I will say this, that this also incorporates a couple in like a couple different languages. So that makes sense, right? But I just thought like, wow, how many times you got to adapt this thing for the stage? Like, is it, is it because people were like, nah, that, that script isn't getting it done. That musical number, that musical number is really not, it's not giving us that Billy Bones feel we really right, right. want, right? We, we need to try a different one. <laughs> And then there are seven audio adaptations, which can range from radio dramas to um, someone doing a a first-person narrative of Long John Silver's experience of Treasure Island, which I actually read that, and I was like, I would like to check that out, the story from Long John Silver's perspective, because that would be super interesting. interesting. Um, and then just, uh, you know, I think, I don't know what you think about this, Zach, but I think the reason why this, this story is so popular and will probably have quite a bit of staying power is because of the amount of adaptations. I think if there weren't this many adaptations, the story Treasure Island probably wouldn't be as well known as it is. But if you go down the street in a random city and you ask someone if they've ever heard of Treasure Island, they might not be able to tell you who the author was and they might not have ever read it, but I can nearly guarantee they've probably heard it. Yeah, no, I agree. They probably have even 
seen it like whether it's yeah. in its original normal form or in you know like the adaptations they've definitely probably seen this i know i just definitely yeah. probably but they've probably seen it yeah yeah it's true i i agree with you on that like even if even if it was one of the random 14 television adaptations you saw on like a random saturday afternoon when you couldn't go out cuz you had the flu or something mm-hmm. there's a chance you've probably run into treasure island in some way shape or form yeah Uh, But that kind of does it for our summary of the story and some fun facts, a little bit of history for you guys. So now we're going to jump into our initial impact of Treasure Island. And so, Zach, for this, because of the amount of adaptations and how many times it's been adapted, I'm going to open this up to allow it to say this could be our initial impact with maybe the original Treasure Island, but as well as our initial impact with maybe one of our favorite adaptations, if that's the first time that we ran into Treasure Island. So I'll have you go ahead and get started okay yeah so i probably like you it's looking like you now that i'm reading your notes here a little bit but i also didn't read this until i was a little older um i wasn't an adult i read it i think in college i read it as just like a summer reading because it was one of those books that you're right i had seen i mean technically you're an adult in college so. uh, yeah i guess you're right yeah, i just yeah, you know yeah yeah you're right so I guess, yes. I mean, I would argue you could still say that you're also a child while you're in college, but that's a different yeah. discussion for it. I think it was time. like my freshman <laughs> year. So maybe on that cusp of like, okay, I'm an adult, but I don't feel like it. But it was one of yeah. those books that I'd seen Muppet Treasure Island many times when I was a kid. And I thought to myself, I need to actually read the source material for this. Like I need to actually read the story, even though... Muppet Treasure Island, for all its goofiness and all of its fun, it sticks to the story pretty well. I mean, it doesn't deviate all that much, save for, you know, Muppet jokes. But I initially, when I first saw this, was with, like I said, Muppet Treasure Island and loved it. I saw it in theaters, I believe. And... Wow. Yeah, I think so. that's yeah, awesome. I believe I did. I'm, I have an image of sitting in a theater watching Muppet Treasure Island because I always, I really like the uh, the little song that they sing when they're taking off and all the rats are acting like it's a like a cruise, like a five star like caravel cruise, and they're all like got their Hawaiian shirts on and they're like asking like, well, where's the where are the martinis and like where's the? Like, I always thought that was really funny, <laughs> even as I got older and like understood some more of their jokes. I always thought that was like. One of the best reoccurring jokes is all the rats think that it's like a cruise. <laughs> so it always cracks me up even thinking about it. Um, that is funny. But yeah, so I, I then I read it in college and it still was super exciting. Like even though it's it's not written in a modern language like as you would expect like an action adventure to be written now. It's still kind of it means the 19th century that it was written in. So it the some of the language is a little antiquated, but it's still a compelling story. And I remember even then I was hooked, even though I knew what was coming, just as probably most people do with all these adaptations and everything. They know what's coming. They know the story. But there's something about this story that just keeps you coming back and keeps you reading. And so when I read it initially, mm-hmm. 
it quickly became one of my favorite action adventure books. And it's, it's truly, I mean, I know it's kind of, it's defined as a desert island romance, but I mean, there's not really much romance going on. I don't really know why that's in that title, but like romance, romance meant something a little different, a little bit different, you know, a a couple hundred years ago. So romance was, was not just a, you know, a love romance type of thing. Romance is kind of, you know, kind of another way to say like a, a drama or adventure story. Got it. Got it. So yeah, I read it and I, I still have the, the original copy that I bought. Like it's still on my bookshelf because it's, it's a book that, um, when I, when I read it, I, I wanted to write or because at that time I was studying film in college and I wanted to do something that had that sense of adventure. And I think that's what really excited me at first was that sense of adventure, even watching the Muppet Treasure Island one. It's like, yes, it's Muppets. And that's probably why I was there in the theater to see it, because my parents would take me to see the Muppets or buy me a Muppets movie whenever because I love the Muppets. But it's still kept that essence of adventure and i remember reading through it in college and just being captivated by how stevenson just keeps mounting that that what's gonna happen next what's gonna especially after that first scene dude Mm -hmm. i think for me that first scene is just so powerful with like Mm -hmm. how it all kind of comes to jim hawkins and how this adventure is kind of thrown and thrust upon him and yeah, I think that is every time, even if I if I could just read one part of it, it would just be that beginning because I love the mystery mm-hmm. surrounding it all because you're getting these shady characters, these like pirates from the sea that come and go and they bring warnings and you think it's like they're they're talking about obviously Long John Silver, but they don't say his name, but they, they're, they're right. like warning people about him and Jim's kind of just dipping a toe into like this world of pirates and you, you can't help but want to be in it. I mean, that's yeah. what the, the beginning of the book does for you. It, it makes you want to be on that boat because you want to see where Jim goes. So for me, yeah, man, yeah. the initial impact was seeing the Muppets and then reading it in college. And it's, it's always remained as one of my favorite action adventures. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that I I can't remember um, if I, I can't remember if I saw Muppet Treasure Island when I was a kid or not. I have seen it since, but I, it's one of those things where my first real exposure to Treasure Island it was a story I was always familiar with. You ever have that feeling like you kind of just always knew about the story? Maybe it's because you you know you had you watched some of these older movies on TV when you were young, but you couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. But where it really set in with me was in uh, 2002 when I saw the movie Treasure Planet. Now a funny story about Treasure Planet is that I did not want to see this movie because I was at that stage of life where I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm an adult. I'm not going to I'm not going to see some dumb kids movie." 
you know, this is a cartoon, you know? And I, I was, like, kind of rebelling against it. Yeah. However, however, this is how I came into seeing it. Not by choice. So, funny thing is, at this age, I was obsessed with Harry Potter. I think at this point I had read the, I think the fourth book. We were up to the fourth book in the series, and I had read all the way through. And the movies were starting to come out, right? And so, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is a movie that I saw three times in theaters in three weeks. So this is what happened. So with Harry Potter movies, I always went to see them with my dad. And I happened to sleep over a friend's house. And when we slept over, that morning his parents woke us up and they were like, hey, we got a surprise for you guys. And they surprised and they took us to the very first showing on that Saturday morning of, of Chamber of Secrets in the theaters. And I had this huge guilt complex going on because I knew that later that evening, I was supposed to, so my parents are divorced, for those who don't know. Um, I was supposed to spend the weekend with my dad, Saturday night, Sunday, with my dad, and he said he was going to take me to see Harry Potter. <laughs> but I was too ashamed to say anything to my friend, right? Like his parents got the tickets for the movie, took us here, had a big surprise, and it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to act like I hadn't seen the movie. Um... Uh, before and so anyway I saw Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets twice on the same day once in the morning once in the evening and you guys are probably thinking what's this have to do with Treasure Island don't worry I'm getting there and then a couple weeks go by a couple weeks go by and then I'm at a different friend's house and they say hey guys we're going to the movies tonight we're going to go to a double feature now here's the thing that you guys have to have to understand and maybe appreciate this friend of mine he was by no means um, poor. His dad had a very good job. He was a big wig at one of the airline companies. Um, but his his mother was a Cuban immigrant and a little savvy with the cash, okay? Mm. So, so we were going to go see a quote-unquote double feature. However, I think this double feature was we were going to see one movie at cost, and then we were going to see one movie on the house, if you know what I mean. Um, so, so anyway, um, the first movie we see is actually Treasure Planet. And I'm like, oh, Treasure Planet, okay, whatever. It's a movie. My friend's parents are paying for it. This is pretty cool. I don't know what it was with my friends and their parents wanting to pay for a bunch of kids going to the movies back, back in the early 2000s. I don't know. Mm. I must have had some pretty good friends back then. <laughs> Um, but anyway, see Treasure Planet, and as I'm watching this movie, I am secretly trying to act super cool, because, like, I'm in sixth grade at the time, but in the back of my head, I'm like, this is a phenomenal movie, right? Mm -hmm. This is a fantastic movie. I think it is actually the most underrated Disney movie I've ever seen, and and I will stand by that. The animation is top quality. It's the it's based on the Treasure Island story, but set in a futuristic environment. So instead of seafaring, you're traveling through space and going to different planets, and so that's why it's called Treasure Planet. And I just thought it was this really good story, this real and really good animation. The the voice acting holds up. This is a movie I think everybody should go out and watch. If you got Disney Plus, go watch Treasure Planet. It's it's well worth the oh, watch. Yeah. It holds up. I think it's great. Great soundtrack too, man. Yeah, 
Yeah, great sound. Does that come up on your playlist while you're writing? It does sometimes. There's, there's certain okay. songs in it that I'll play to kind of set the mood for a scene that I nice. write because it's, it's nice. really, really good, man. Have you seen the movie? Yes. Yeah, I've, you yeah, have. I've seen Treasure Planet. Okay, nice. Do you like it? I really liked it because I like okay. space and I like space that doesn't have a bunch of rules and mm-hmm. soft science fiction. And so it's... It had that whimsical, like, adventure to it, and it was set in space. So, I mean, it's like watching Star Wars, you know? So, if it's in space and it's got a cool adventure, I'm probably going to love it. So, yeah, I I love Treasure Planet. And and not to mention, like, Treasure Planet, not only is it an animated movie, it has, like, an all-star cast. Joseph Gordon, love it, voices main character. Uh, I think it. What is it? M. Emma. Emma Thompson. I think that's her last name. Emma Thompson, pretty well known British actor. She does. She does the voice of one of the characters. I believe Martin Short is the voice of the robot in there. And it's. I mean, it's pretty good. Pretty good so cast. Good. And and that was back when Martin Short was kind of like a big deal. Yeah. He, no. I mean, I'm sure our younger audience is like Martin. Who? Like, yeah, he was. He was a pretty big comedian in the yeah. '80s and '90s. Yeah. But um, yeah. But-, but anyway, I saw the movie and was just totally blown away by it, and, and finished this movie and was surprised to do this double feature, which I'm pretty sure we didn't pay for, which actually happened to be Harry Potter and the Chamber <laughs> of Secrets. So <laughs> you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> which I I just had to look up here out of curiosity because I remember it was a really long night and out of curiosity I had to look up the runtime of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. What do you think the runtime is on Chamber of Secrets? If you were to guess, uh, hour twenty five minutes. Oh, you're way off, dude. Way off. Two hours and fifty four minutes is its listed runtime. Jeez, that's a long one. That's a long movie. I don't remember the Harry Potter movies being That's that a long, long movie for but the hey. crowd they were going for. Like <laughs> for real, dude. Not yeah. gonna pay attention for that long. Uh, you know, this is coming up on Google here. I might have to I might have to check that with another source, but man, that seems wild, dude. That's a, that is a crazy yeah, long movie. Plan. It's like an hour and a half. So yeah, for sure. That, that might be even shorter. But anyway, that was my first exposure to Treasure Island and really taking it in and really enjoying it. And from from that point going forward, I know that when I was uh, I was out of college, I was living uh, in New Jersey when I decided to just sit down and read Treasure Island, like the whole thing through. I read it in like two days. I love the writing style. I think it holds up. Mm-hmm. And I'll get more to who I think the target audience for it is and my lasting appeal. But a story that I think... Like you mentioned, it starts off with a bang and just kind of keeps you interested, keeps you going. The chapter length just feels so good. And, and it really is, it just, it has this nonstop adventure feel to it. And when you're reading that, I mean, that's a that's a fun thing to do. Because a lot of times in a book, like there can be really big lulls in an adventure story. Even though it's an adventure story, there's a, oftentimes a lot of downtime to either do some world building or or to teach you some rules of the world. And Stevenson wasn't concerned with much of that. He was concerned with the characters, taking them on an adventure, you know, and and telling you a little bit about them along the way and, and getting that treasure found. And and I, I think that this was uh, from the sighting of Treasure Planet, uh, Treasure Island immediately became a story that was near and dear to my yeah. heart. Yeah, no, I agree, man. It was, it was a story for me that 
even because when I experienced it, it was with the Muppets is like, I could still feel the story through the, the goofiness of the Muppets. And I could still sense that adventure, especially when they would have the wide shots of the, the ship going through the, the ocean. And you just wanted Mm -hmm. to be out there with them on the deck and just to experience the breeze and the sea and everything. I mean, obviously, if I was really out there, it'd, it'd probably a little be be a little more miserable than what they let on. But like, <laughs> sure. it was still it for me. I, I agree, man. Just it was a book and it was a story that when I first experienced it, I fell in love with the adventure genre. And I haven't really mm-hmm. read too much. I mean, I know there's some great writers out there that write those kind of Indiana Jones esque novels that are all adventure and like people traveling around the world and this one though i mean it's pretty self-contained i mean you get you laid it all out for us you there's only a few settings really there's like Mm -hmm. jim hawkins is like the bar the the restaurant he works in and then there's the boat Mm -hmm. and then there's the island like it's it's pretty simple but within that simple story i think what Stevenson did is he, he pulled a lot of universal storytelling techniques out of it. And that's why yeah. I think it can be adapted so many times because there's so many archetypes in this book or in this story. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think as uh, kind of on that note, I think it's a good time to transition into our lasting appeal of it. And you know, as I, as I was thinking, the, I think so, a good way we could start incorporating some of our lasting appeal type of stuff is if we not only talk about what it means to us personally, but what are the specific elements of the story or certain aspects of it that really stick with us that we think make this something worth loving. And so I put down three things here that I'm going to point out if you want to point out the same thing Zach you can go for it if you have different things in mind but I think it would be fun if each of us named a favorite character or character arc within the within the book uh, maybe a favorite scene or part of the book or that we find you know most meaningful or impacting or just really well done and then lastly who we think will enjoy this story the most because I think that's another thing too that there's always a target audience and I think maybe for things like Treasure Island back in the 19th century that wasn't as much of the focus right but it definitely was it was in a it was in a magazine um called uh, what was it called young readers or or uh young mm-hmm. guy I can't remember now it was it? young folks right so it's obviously for young yeah. kids at the time um but anyway uh just if you want to point out a couple of those things I can point out a couple of those things and anything else you'd like to say um so go ahead yeah I think away. uh for me just a couple of things that really stood out to me um for the lasting appeal and I mentioned it earlier is is that opening scene and scenes with Jim and Billy Bones and Billy Bones getting that black spot like I think that mm-hmm. the whole transgression or that whole series of events of because I mean Billy Bones is not a likable character even though he kind of becomes no. one in the book he's a kind of a jerk like he 
gets sure, drunk yeah. all the time. And, and Jim's <laughs> mom is constantly trying to deal with him. And like the doctor doesn't even want to really help him. And, like, yeah. nobody... Isn't he like not really paying either? Yeah, that's, he's isn't isn't that an issue too? But he he's, keeps saying like, he's oh, not like, really it's paying. coming. It's coming. Like I'm going to give you. <laughs> right. He keeps telling him, don't worry. I'm good for it. And he's never shown him right. anything. He just drinks all right. the alcohol. He drinks all the rum. <laughs> <laughs> like just gets plastered all the time and then passes out in his bedroom. And Jim's got to carry him up to his room half the time. It's so like, but there's still something about Billy Bones for me that like is still like he's got a, a haunted past. I mean, we f- later find out like he's he was on the boat and on the ship with Long John Silver and whoever Long John Silver's like captain was. But mm-hmm. like there was just a Captain Flint. Flint. That's right. Like there was just a terrible yeah terrible ship to work on because it's just people were scared mm-hmm. all the time you're like anyone could die at any time for any reason flint would give and so like billy bones is trying to get like away from that past but the the concept to me that stood out the most with this character in this arc is like the the sins of your past can still come to haunt you and they like the things that you did still can come back and if and I'm sure there's there's things that Billy Bones could have done to quote unquote repent and to kind of free himself of it. But probably hanging in a bar by the ocean is not the where you wanted to go if you were afraid of pirates, because, I mean, the the bar like looks out over the ocean like the cliff was on the other side of the street. So like mm-hmm. wasn't too surprised that they found him. But then I love the scene when he then was it the black dog gives him the black spot is that what it was yeah yeah Yeah. oh man that's such a great scene because like he gets it and you're with jim and you have no idea what the black spot means but billy bones is like this is it like this is my death mark like like you got to do this for me jim you got to help me blah 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 and i think for me that scene will always stand out as probably my favorite scene from, and I know it comes right at the beginning, but it just sets the stage of both adventure. Cause you know, there's a whole world adventure out there. Cause that's where Billy bones comes from. And you know, Jim really wants to go on an adventure. He's kind of tired of working like in his mom's bar or whatever the restaurant. And so he wants to get out. And then all of a sudden, like that world comes right to his doorstep. And Mm-hmm. He, you, there's mystery. There's this villain, this unnamed villain that's out there coming for Billy Bones, and now there's this crew of bad guys, and it just, I it immediately for me through Billy Bones's plot arc, the character arc draws you into the story, and so mm-hmm. to me that was the most impactful part of the story too, because it launches you into the rest of the story, and then the characters just get even better from there. I mean like captain smollett is like one of my favorite characters he's really like Mm -hmm. to me he's the ideal captain like if i ever thought of like a person i would want running like a company or a ship like someone of that moral character that's struggles to do the right thing because even at times he doesn't know what the right thing is but you can see that he's really wrestling with it and i like that he's a real person that when he's confronted with challenges he 
has to kind of step back and debate it a little bit of what he wants to do. And he doesn't always immediately have the right answer at hand. Um, yeah. So for me, I think that those, those two things really stood out to me. And mm-hmm. I think I, I'm interested to hear though, who you think the, the story's really for or who's who, uh, mm-hmm. who this audience was for, because I can see it being for young boys for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But there are there are themes and there are the language in it. It seems to be for older boys because I don't think if I would have been if I would pick this up as a middle schooler, like I would have read it, but it it probably wouldn't have captured me as much reading it as it would have been watching it because the reading is the reading. And there's some slower moments at the beginning that kind of if you're if you don't know what's going to happen next, you would probably put it down for a little bit, but right. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it would, the, the, the age range of like teenagers would be who I think this book's most suited for. But why don't you tell me what you think? Man? Okay. Sure. Uh, uh, first thing I'm going to mention here is, uh, my favorite character in the story is, uh, long John silver. Um, not because I like him, but because I think he is nearly the perfect villain. Um, and here's why. I, I think from his his portrayal, uh, as far as a villain goes, mm-hmm. he has an obvious weakness, right? He has a physical he has a physical weakness, right? He has one leg. So you're not really threatened by him physically. You're not really threatened by his appearance. And not only that, he's able to be super smooth. He gains the trust of Jim Hawkins, who Jim Hawkins was the finder of the map, which I think is something that you know needs to be it's not force fed to you. But, you know, Silver knows that Hawkins is the one to have found the map, and his goal is to butter up this little kid and turn him against the people who are basically trying to rip him off, right? That's the, that's, as much as you, you kind of want to put Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey in this, in this high field, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of want to screw Jim Hawkins over. Um, You know, they're taking advantage of him. And taking advantage of his family and taking advantage of his predicament. And so, you know, it's just the the perfect villain to kind of, you know, kind of notice Jim's struggles, Mm. play right into what he needs and be that for him. And then use that to manipulate his way to basically try and trust in the kid. And obviously he's trying to steal the map and get access to it. Um, but he's, he's found out before his plan can obviously get all the way through, but, but he's the perfect villain in the fact that he has, he has an obvious impairment, but his strength of being able to schmooze and kind of talk his way out of situations and motivate the crew and still instill fear within the crew. Like that's another thing that's said in the story, whether or not you can trust silver to be reliable in it or not he does say that you know he's the only person who captain flint ever feared Mm -hmm. um and you know you could say maybe silver's stretching it a little bit but i think with how afraid um billy bones was at getting the black spot i think that also kind of legitimizes like john silver is no pushover right he might have one bad leg but he's no pushover right 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he's this combination of like believable. He feels like this is what a real bad guy could be like. He doesn't have any overpowering uh, qualities that couldn't be bettered by a better person, but he just seems to outwit everybody, outsmart everybody. And that makes for a really dangerous villain and a really believable villain. Yeah. So, uh, I think he's the best character in the story. Uh, I do like Jim Hawkins' story arc, but it's written in such a way where you are getting Hawkins' absorption of everything he saw. In in the storyteller, Stevenson is not as focused on telling you about Jim, but rather sharing with you the the experience that Jim had. Yeah. Right. Um, the The book isn't extremely introspective when it comes to Jim Hawkins. Mm. So, uh, I, I'm with you. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it because you did a great job. But my favorite part of the story is actually the beginning, the opening, with Billy Bones coming to the inn and the exchange of the black spot. For me, that's just that's one of the best tension builders, mm-hmm. right? Especially if, if you come in it not really knowing where the story's going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's really this mysterious, strange thing. And, it's, it, and when you think about it, it's really simple, right? And then he, you know, Jim Hawkins, like you said, is thrust into the adventure from that point forward. And I just love how the, the story opens because I do think that Treasure Island opens with a with a really good bang and then kind of slows itself down into after, you know, Hawkins gets hold of the map and he's talking to Trelawney and Livesy and all of that. There's, there is some dialogue there that's a little boring, especially for what I think the target audience was originally. Mm-hmm. Um, that really kind of slows the story down. Yeah. But it picks, it picks back up r- once they get on the boat. But, uh, but yeah, for me, I think the, the target audience for this, I, I think would be younger children but this is with the caveat. And by younger children, I, I'm actually probably saying more like 10, 10 to 13 age range. So I guess like more like middle grade-ish. So, so kind of your same target yeah. audience. Um, but I do think that this is a story mm-hmm. that is is at its best if this is a story that parents read out loud to their children. Because... What I think you could do is you can really kind of bring these characters to life for your kids and and really kind of maybe even, you know, ask them questions as you go. Like, what do you think about this? Or if you were Jim Hawkins, what would you do? Or um, or do you like John Silver? Or do you like, you know, the professor? Or, you know, know, um, just asking questions. Although I would say at this day and age, if you're reading to that target audience, especially if you're going to read around, like Mm -hmm. if you're going to read 10 or younger, I would recommend an abridged version of the book that kind of goes through some of the slower parts a little faster. Cause, cause I think this story is, is able to have some of the fat trimmed from it for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the story in it's full blown completeness is probably best read. Like you mentioned by a teenager. Like if you're gonna read the full story, like sit down and read this book because it's not it's not necessarily short either. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like when you you start reading it, it doesn't feel like a kid's book because it's it's kind of long, and, and and you know there's quite a bit of dialogue. There it's it, it you know it's kind of a um, 
it assumes that you've read books before. We'll say that it's not mm-hmm. a it's not a book to start your reading journey off with. But uh, and then lastly, last thing I'll just say about it is that I think Treasure Island is one of those classics that no matter what stage of life you're at, if you've never read it before, you got to pick it up. You got to read it. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you could do it. You could read it for free. You could go to the Gutenberg Project. Um, if you go to their website, you can basically read anything that's in the public domain for free. A lot of times they'll have Kindle versions of those books or PDF versions of those books too. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know if you're strapped for cash and, and don't want to buy one, but for the most part, like if you went to a bookstore or, or ordered one online, like a lot of times these public domain books, you're, you're just paying the cost for whatever it costs them to print them, and they're like five dollars or or mm-hmm. less. And and this is a book I think that you want a physical copy. You want to keep this on your bookshelf and and have in your collection. Um, so that's just my, my last thing I'll say is this is a book that, you know, I I really try and think of who will enjoy this most and recommend it to them. But this is something I think no matter who you are, what stage of life you're in, if you have not read Treasure Island, you absolutely have to. Mm. Um, just because of how influential I think it has been on adventure stories and how many traditional elements of storytelling it uses. Yeah. Very yeah. good, man. So. Yeah. There it is. That's it. Go ahead. No, I was I was just agreeing. Yeah, that that's uh I I I think yeah, you're right with the the being read aloud is is the way to to go with if you're going to go for a younger younger crowd because yeah. yeah, the language in it, it's not like it's bad language. It's just it's older. So it's hard yeah. to it's hard to access as a middle schooler younger, but the story though is what every young boy probably dreams of so yeah Yeah, man it it does such a good job too of like every kid wants to go on an adventure and and it does a good job of thinking about the reality of well with adventure there comes people you can trust and people you can't like legitimate obstacles threats danger Mm -hmm. and that it's not easy it's just so many good lessons along the way that you don't even need to heavy-handedly explain to a kid but just them experiencing it they'll, they'll take it and they'll get mm-hmm. it um and so it's it's just, just great in that yeah. way you know i was gonna ask you before we close up here um we were thinking about the target audience now this is definitely something that was originally released for young kids in fact it was, it was originally called right the sea cook a story for boys mm-hmm. now do you think that we're kind of upping the target age a little bit because reading is not necessarily most kids' main form of entertainment and adventure, especially with the popularity of of screens and movies and television and video games being a storytelling outlet? You think it's just because kids aren't reading as much that we're kind of upping the target age because we think it'll take longer before kids ready to read this because they're just not reading as much or um what do you think think it probably is a little bit of that um i think and it's been a little bit since i've read treasure island but i remember reading it in college and there are parts that kind of dragged a little bit and Mm -hmm. for me if it was a if i was you know younger than middle school i would probably be a little bored i'd also probably be a little intimidated by Mm -hmm. just it's not a big book but the just you know that you're used to like a goosebumps or something that 
doesn't have that many words on a page and it, it reads quickly but there's a lot of mm-hmm. setup and f- like there's a lot of character like it like a lot of character development that happens and i think there's times even though we continue to say this is an action-packed story and it it, it is really but there are moments where Stevenson does kind of slow it down and he wants to talk about like Jim's thoughts on things and like what he's feeling towards long John silver and his predicament. And Mm -hmm. I think when, if you get into a character's head for too long for younger readers, that becomes boring to them. Whereas for us Mm -hmm. and as older readers, that's a, that's an interesting part because now we're, we're understanding our characters better, but for a boy that's, just getting into reading you just want the action you want a story that kind of right. transports you to another world to another place with unique characters which this all does it just sometimes it takes a bit to get there so whether that's a byproduct of the fact that we give kids tons of screen time anymore mm-hmm. it could be i mean their attention span probably is a little shorter and i don't know if catering to that is the best thing i don't think that we should just go oh well our kids can only read for 15 minutes at a time or 20 minutes at a time because that's how long a tv show is it's like no let's let's break that habit let's break that mindset and actually get them reading something that would even challenge them so i know i'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth there but um i i think that you probably have something there with attention span and why we kind of bump up our our age of readers based on whether a book is what we think is too complex when in in reality i mean a middle schooler could probably read it because yeah when i look back on it i mean we read we read um uh that jack london book uh call the wild and -hmm. that's that's not an easy book really to read and it doesn't have a lot of dialogue because the main character is a dog or a wolf so like yeah there i would say that that's that treasure island is probably on par with that of complexity and development of of characters but what do you think um Wait, say that again? You think that Call of the Wilds are more complex? No, right? I'm saying they're both saying? probably the same level of complexity in my mind, from okay. what I remember. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I would also say it's probably on the same level of complexity as like a Harry Potter book. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's more complex than Harry Potter. It just It's a little older style of writing, which I think is an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, um, which... You, you also have to think, too, Treasure Island was written at a time where, you know, people would have been somewhat familiar with, with seafaring and, and somewhat familiar with the history of, of pirates. Like, if you read through Treasure Island, the, the book doesn't go out of its way to over-explain to you, like, a bunch of stuff about seafaring. This is not, um, who's the guy who wrote Moby Dick? Herman yeah. Melville. It's saying Herman <laughs> Melville, guys. This And this this isn't Jules Verne who's having to explain to you everything about seafaring. There's actually very little in here and, and very little about the, you know, the, the world and the setting. It's kind of like, hey, we kind of assume that people 
lived at this time and understand these things. So, so there's a little bit of a context gap, but the reading level itself, I don't think is too hard. Um, but, but yeah, I would say that's fair. If you can read, if you can read Call of the Wild, then you should be able to sit down and read Treasure Island. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree. But yeah, that's kind of it, man. Um, but hey, let's wrap this one up. Just want to thank everybody for listening, and uh, we're looking forward to more episodes to come. I we have we have the next two months planned out. It's going to be a fun journey. I think next week. What are we doing next week? Great Gatsby. Is that Great what I saw Gatsby, on the schedule? Man. Oh man, that's that's exciting. I'm pumped about that mm. one. So you know you know what we could do, and and Zach, let me know what you think about this. Should we should we even maybe post it up on the website like the episodes that are coming down the pike? So people can look and see and get excited for it, or should we leave it a surprise week to week? What do you think? Here's the thing: if we if we put it up, I think people can then, you know, email us, hop on the newsletter, yeah. let us know what's going yeah. on. Like, hey, I knew this about this book or this movie or whatever we're doing. So yeah, yeah we can tease that. You know, let's do that. Let's get our list up, and we'll share it with you guys. And it'll probably go up at the same exact day that this episode goes live, and I'm excited about that. But I uh, just want to thank you all for listening. Zach, you got anything to say before we say goodbye? Uh, go read this book. That's good enough for me, man. Have a good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next time on Parallel Quest. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Bye.